Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is NBK, president of CoinKite, hardware hacker, and Bitcoin maximalist. We talk about tinkering, manufacturing, and artistic expression within hardware. NBK also tells us about quality, reducing costs, and heuristics to determine whether a product is actually good. NVK is an OG of the Bitcoin community who's been into hardware and tinkering for a long time. His company, CoinKite, makes some great products for Bitcoin security, and he's learned quite a bit about manufacturing over the years. He has some takes on why manufacturing is currently focused in China and how this will change under a Bitcoin standard. Enjoy the show. NVK, how's everything going? Good, man. How's things there? <laughs> it's not too bad, but I hear things are pretty terrible in Canada. I mean, I keep hearing about like people getting arrested and everyone needing to quarantine and locking down. I don't know. It doesn't seem that great to me, but maybe you have a different perspective. Yeah, people are a bit freaked out here, but at the same time, it's mostly bark and no bite. <laughs> you know how like how media loves to sort of like, it's like a big deal on all sides kind of thing. You know, like it sells, right? To say that it's like an open gulag where like, you know, most people sort of moved on from giving a shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been such a crazy time. And of course, like I started this podcast because I wasn't getting enough like, you know, adult conversation. But I can't imagine just how like abnormal it must feel there at this point, just like. You know, it's hard enough for people in Canada to see each other during the winter. But, you know, like even during the summer, like being like staying at home and all that with the masks. Yeah. And, you we, know. we just we naturally stay at home in the winter, you know, <laughs> if you're not into winter things. So people just naturally like become a hibernating bear. So it was easy for them to say, hey, you can have lockdowns in Canada in the winter. Everybody's like, eh, OK, <laughs> so life as usual, right? Yeah. But then. As soon as it started to get warm, everybody's just fuck all, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> everybody's just going illegally to people's houses and sort of like doing all the usual things. So like as the summer comes, I doubt they're going to like have any grip on society anymore. I see. Yeah, yeah. It, it does kind of get like that. All right. So I wanted to get you on this show because you obviously have like a variety of interests and you're really very much a hardware guy. And as a software guy... Like hardware tends to be kind of a mystery. So can you give our listeners a little bit of a background on like how you got into hardware and, you know, what brought you to, you know, where you are now, where you're, you know, making all sorts of hardware in different ways? Yeah. So, you know, I'm a generalist, right? Like, mm -hmm. and I surround myself with specialists <laughs> who, <laughs> who know what they're doing. I know what kind of like what I want to achieve, right? As a product or as a toy or as a hobby or whatever. You know, I get into sort of like understanding how things work and and then sort of like go from there, right? Like try to find the right people. But like I was fortunate that it's been like actually over 10 years now. CoinKite is, I think is about 10 years old now. Mm. It's pre-Bitcoin that we started it together. Me and Peter, my business partner. And he is an old school dev, right? From like writing, uh, <laughs> Fortran is capable. 
So yeah, we've been tinkering with stuff for years, right? And you know, we built the Bitcoin payment terminals back in 2013, 2012, and debit cards and sort of like and hardware is like hardware is one of those those things that you're sort of like bound by physics, right? Mm. Like you can't just like have infinite memory. <laughs> <laughs> like software people just, you know, ah, just pay for more Amazon memory, right? Uh-huh. You know, sometimes we're looking for a few extra bytes on a chip so we can fit a few more things, right? And yeah, it's just like, it's an interesting, very, very constraint-oriented kind of development, right? Mm. You're bound by physics, you're bound by costs, hard costs. Mm. And for me, that's like a huge turn-on to work on. It's a turn-on? Explain that a little bit. Why is it so attractive, I guess? Yeah, because, you know, I find fun having constraints, right? Mm. Like, I'm not, like, huge on making sort of, like, hobby toys or, like, sort of, like, DIY projects kind of deal. Mm. I appreciate the constraints that come from making marketable products, right? Mm. Having this necessity of finding the right economics in parts and manufacturing and, and all the things that involve hardware, right? Like, because making a little project, you mm. know, even if you make your own PCB or whatever, you can do whatever you want, right? But mm. then once you get into like, how do you manufacture this? Can you mm. make this in scale? Can you ship this? Can you find sources for this specific chip at, at like a certain price, right? Uh, can we program all these little guys in scale? All those constraints are, are super cool. And they're like very complex problem solving with like moving targets. Mm. Yeah, the economics of it are really interesting in that like things get more cheap or more expensive like all the time. And it, it's kind of a strange thing that you know, you, strange constraints that you have to constantly go through. But before we get into all of that, how did you get into it? Like what like sort of uh, what was the impetus for getting into hardware sort of as a career as you have now? I think it's just the tinkering mentality, right? Mm. Like it's this idea that like I need to make this thing exist, mm. right? It's this necessity of solving the problem. And that's sort of how I got into it. It's just... You know, I need to make this product because I have this actual need in my life. Like everything I make or work on, it's always scratching my own itch, right? Mm. And this is the same for my hobbies, right? Like Mm. it's just like I need to accomplish something. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, and if I go on the internet and I cannot find the thing (laughs) Mm. that solves my problem exactly how I want, then I'll go and make it, right? (laughs) And yeah, that's sort of how I got into it. I can't quite remember exactly like which first product or project I worked on. It's been sort of like on and off for many years. Mm. Yeah. But but were you into it as a child yeah. or like uh, yeah, so Okay. What were some things that you tinkered with earlier? Yeah, so I was really into uh freaking, which was like uh phone hacking um, mm. back as a teenager. You know, like I'd have my uh, 50-foot copper pair to go steal the neighbor's uh, phone line to use the internet in Brazil. (laughs) (laughs) So I could use it all day. You know, cell phones back in the day were not digital, right? Mm. And they were not encrypted. So there were these old Ericsson phones. There were like some special way of grounding the device and putting some special codes that you could listen to all the calls around you. (laughs) 
<laughs> what? Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. You could uh, essentially channel hop, right? Because mm. things were not. Yeah. Many people don't understand that like pre-digital phones, all cell phones were essentially walkie talkies. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, try to like, you know, use uh, pay phones for free and play around with marine radios to interfere with the school and hack the school system and stuff like that, right? Like it was always like, I was like never super technical, like like deep, mm. deep technical. I was sort of like more like trying to hack things out. Uh, <laughs> so you had sort of like a hacker mentality less than say like understanding the deep innards of something. You exactly. just sort of like went with what worked and that seems to be your bent there. That was always my thing. And it was also sort of like my barrier of entry or my sort of like my limitation. Mm. That's why it was always sort of like nice to like uh, partner up or work with people who had a much deeper technical understanding of a specific thing. Mm. Then you sort of like, you do these collaborations where, you know, like you can define the product better than the person who's super pigeonholed into mm -hmm. the specifics of something. Yeah, that's sort of like where I live till today. <laughs> <laughs> so that tinkering mentality of just sort of like hacking at something until, you know, it kind of works. Like, how did that sort of translate then to like making a business? I mean, I guess you already sort of said that you started scratching your own itch, as it were. But it seems strange that like, you would know that other people would want to buy this thing. Like, how did you get into that part? Well, think about like, you know, the true OG freaking hackers, like, you know, the mm -hmm. guys selling blue boxes. It's kind of fascinating, right? Because, and this is partly of like internet's a culture, right? Or BBS culture. It's like, you could hack things into existence and then find people that want to buy it. Right. Um, <laughs> and in a weird way, like that never sort of appealed to me too much because I was sort of always, again, like selling DIY things is not mm -hmm. like interesting to me. Mm. But then, you know, then I sort of like lost a bit of interest in that and went into like other sort of activities. And, but then sort of like when I got back into being interested in like developing products, right? Developing mm. solutions in the market through software right? Mm. Probably like 15, 20 years ago kind of thing. I, I sort of like got back into this idea of like making a solution that is marketable, that is like economical and, and all those things, right? And then slowly sort of like got sick of working with just software, right? And, and, <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and like, like got back into sort of like working with hardware, right? And I think like making internal products that we needed the market was not solving the problem, right? Like making Bitcoin HSMs like 10 years or so ago and then trying to sell those. They were not economically super good, but they were great for us. And then slowly making the payment terminals and trying to sell that as, as a marketable product, sort of like really sort of refining the pricing, the constraints and the market kind of thing, like mm -hmm. honing and honing it got me and our company into what we do now, right? That was sort of like the path. Of like, just sort of like honing it and finding people that, uh, well, trying to get the economics right and so on. So let's get into the money aspect a little bit. Because like a lot of the manufacturing is in China. What's that like for you? Explain to me like how you 
Well, first of all, figure out how much people are willing to pay and how you sort of like, you know, figure out the costs and pricing and things like that. Yeah. So we started making open dimes in China way back then. And so same for the payment terminals. And I was like, one thing that always pissed me off about manufacturing in China is like the time delay, the social aspect of dealing with Chinese manufacturers. There is a difference in culture. Mm. And, you know, nothing beats being able to drive to your factory (laughs) 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 and yell at people. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like you can find the problems, right? So we moved everything to Canada uh, way back, right? Like the second batch of open dimes or the third batch of open dimes of first generation open dime was already made in Canada, right? Mm. I found contract manufacturer here and sort of like slowly like building that that capability here until sort of like became bigger and bigger and bigger, right? To to Mm. sort of like have our own lines and all that stuff. Yeah, so like products like Cold Card, they were like born and raised in Canada. (laughs) Mm. Like they're manufactured here. Everything that can be done here is done here. Like specific parts are still have to be, they're still made in China, right? Like that's because Mm. that's the only place where the stuff is at. Like, for example, the plastic enclosure, right? It's all design here, but the actual molding of the plastic cases are made there and then mm-hmm. shipped here. Or PCBs, for example, just the actual PCB is made there, but then the PCBs bare come to Canada and then we populate them here, test them here and all that stuff. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, we do most of it in Canada. Mm. But the economics of it, like how do you decide... So this is the thing, right? So so shipping is surprisingly one of the biggest costs, fixed Mm. costs that you have. And Mm. shipping costs have been increasing substantially for the last few years. Mm. So once you amortize all that shipping through the quantity you buy, right? Like it's surprising how if you design the product in a way that is fitting with the Canadian manufacturing economics, right? Mm. So labor is more expensive here. So can Mm. you make it? less labor intensive, right? Mm. You can actually find an e- almost an equalization because what many people don't know is that hardware has about 20% of hidden costs, the mm-hmm. complete, absolute ghosts. You're not going to find the reason why it's costing you 20% more to make the thing that you cost it out at 80%. <laughs> Seriously, it, it's quite fascinating. You know, unless you're like at an Apple level kind of size, right? But even then, I'm sure they still have a percent that they can't figure out. <laughs> so, are you saying there's corruption in this hardware manufacturing stuff, or are you? No, are you no, no, no. It's just this? hidden. It's like part of it is like defects. Part of it is like labor debt weak. Part of it is just like it's a multitude of variables, right? That you don't control. So you work on thresholds, right? You have like you know it's going to cost between this and this to have this finished product. Right. And every week is going to vary which parts were more, which parts were less in terms of like things that, that are part of your cost. So it could be that that week, uh, like labor is a little bit more expensive because you need an extra person. Right. And the next week could be that, like, I don't know, the price of copper went up and you had to pay extra for PCBs. <laughs> it's, like, it's like all over the place. Right. <laughs> and is this just fascinating dance that you have with like the physical world, right? To like sort this stuff out and still deliver the product at the fixed final price that you have for your customers. 
And so, yeah, like our devices are, they're very utilitarian. Mm. They're very production focused in design, right? So we design them based on this production. And so we, we try to marry those two things. Like as utilitarian as possible. And can we make it here in Canada at an economical cost, right? So the way you design the PCB, what choice of buttons do you use? Like how the epoxy gets put on, you know, what kind of plastic to use on the case? You know, can I reduce, like, for example, packaging? I absolutely hate packaging. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing that pisses me more off than those stupid boxes, pretty boxes that when you try to open it, it doesn't come out because of like vacuum inverse pressure. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Like it pisses me off, right? It's like I have, like, the product is like, you you know, 10% of the volume that they just shipped you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like it's with electronics a lot, right? Yeah, and it's like, no, I don't need one more USB cable. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like it's like there's all these things that, like, like again, it's all like personal preferences that, like, they really come through on our products. Like, if you ever have bought like a product from us, you you know, like Mm -hmm. the product comes in a little bag, and that's it. Mm -hmm. And it's always like sort of like very minimalist. It's clear bag. It's just a product and it's usually sealed in some way, but that's it. That's it. There's nothing else. Exactly. Right. And like our customers appreciate it and we pass on those savings to the customer too. Right. So it's kind of like twofold and, and it's also utilitarian because everything is sort of verifiable. Right. The bag is clear. The plastic is clear. You know, there's a lot of that sort of mentality on everything. Mm. Yeah. And that's interesting that your personality sort of comes out in the packaging. That's not something that I would have you know, thought. But like, what does that say about all the other sort of manufacturers that have these really nice boxes and this, you know, I mean, they have engineers just for like the box opening experience, right? Like the unboxing experience that you're going to get and, and things like that. You're paying for all that. It's like paying for a fancy sofa in a lawyer's office, mm-hmm. right? Like you're paying for that. So when somebody ships you something that has like this extremely convoluted, amazing packaging, that's probably like 10, 20% of the cost. Could be even more. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, right? To think. For, um, for like a phone? Like you're saying it's like 20 bucks to manufacture the box and everything? I don't think for like a, a phone, just uh-huh. because of the scale they're playing at. Uh-huh. But, but some other things could definitely be that high. So for example, for the beauty industry, right? Mm. Some of the fancier stuff is like the packaging could be 70% of the cost of the product. So the Mm. bottle of like perfume, for example, that's Mm. 70%. (laughs) It's crazy. (laughs) Like put that thing in a tube. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You would (laughs) think. And I find it's like, it's like part of this like culture, right? Of like low time preference and, and sort of like waste. And it's not even like talking about environment or anything that stuff, right? It's just a waste of resources in general, including your money. I'm very like cognizant and respectful of like people's, the money that they part with to give to us. It's sort of something that that matters to me. That you make sure that they're not spending too much money on stuff. Yeah, it's value, right? Like, can I convince you to give me your sats, right? Mm. For the product that I make. So, like, are you getting enough value? That's sort of like my mentality. Mm. Well, so let's talk about some of your products because one obviously, like, kind of caused a stir because Jack Dorsey had a, you know, a block clock, like, 
behind him when he was testifying in Congress. That, to me, is more art than functionality. What was that about? Why did you make that? And how did it end up on Jack's desk? Yeah, so about uh, a few years ago, we wanted to make a artistic sort of piece, right? That was like economically marketable, compatible, right? So like, and that to commemorate 10 years of Bitcoin, right? Mm-hmm. So we created the original block clock. Cost it a fortune because of like all the parts that go into it are very specialized and all these things. Mm. And so, so then we wanted to make one that was more accessible to everybody. And that's how the block clock meeting came about. I wanted to make a device that sort of like gave people the same piece I get from watching the, the block height. <laughs> like seriously, it's like, it's a very peaceful thing to me. It's like, it's like you, you look at this thing and it's like, okay, one more, one mm. more. One more, you know, like every around every 10 minutes or so, you get another one. And, and it's just nice. It's like a nice thing to have around the house, right? I work with Bitcoin all day, right? So yeah, so, so we made this more affordable version of the clock. And it's like, you can see the PCB on it. It's our style, right? Of black PCBs of gold. And it has a bit of comedy on it. And yeah, so it's like, you know, like very thick acrylic. It's like it feels good in the hand. It's like nice on the counter. And it's like, you know, it's like sort of like the best we could do in an economical price. And it became a meme. <laughs> <laughs> the Moscow time meme. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it's like, and you know, the product, it's like it's doing very well and, and like people really like it. You can plug open dimes on it to initialize or, or deposit. And we sort of like try to give you as much functionality as possible on, on the things we make. Mm. Yeah, and that was itself very interesting. Just yeah, I don't know. It's very cool how mechanical it is, right? Like like there's plenty of like sort of digital clocks, but like this one like sort of like displayed your personality. You seem to like the mechanical, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, you know, anyone can display the Bitcoin price on a screen, mm-hmm. right? And the original block clock had electrical mechanical digits right that we source mm. from the last place in the world that makes professional ones for train stations <laughs> <laughs> so that was wow. a bit pricey those are rated for a hundred million rotations wow yeah it's pretty cool there is one factory left in poland that still makes them that's um, it really literally yeah. one factory in poland that's it that's the last <laughs> factory that makes them and they do very well right because there's mm. retrofit throughout europe for train stations so for the mini because those digits were so expensive for the mini we wanted to find a different technology right that that was a little bit more affordable so what we did is instead of putting a single sort of display or something we put seven e-ink displays right so they're like mechanically separate from each mm. other and it's e-ink which like it's kind of cool you can see it without like having lights on it Mm-hmm. You know, like a normal display shines light through, right? So it's like it's like almost like a physical thing. Well, actually, e-ink is physical. You're uh, with like twelve volts. You're literally changing the state of the crystals on the display, which is kind of cool. Yeah, that is really cool. And so that's how you sort of made this thing, and now it's like this art thing. So tell me more about sort of like the relationship between art and hardware because it it, like a lot of the pieces that you make it does sort of like have an aesthetic how important is that to hardware so you know like pcb routing right at this level it's like it's fairly artistic 
right? And if you get, like, for example, some of the best audio gear in the world is still, like, traced by hand, right? Like, it's somebody that draws those traces. And some of the older folks who do tracing or, or work in more analog electronics, especially for radio stuff, they're very artistic. <laughs> There's some very cool PCBs out there that you, you never see it because it's inside something. Mm. Uh, but somebody put a lot of love and, and sort of like effort into making that. You know, it's like sculpting or drawing. And, and we're not working at, a say, like an iPhone level of complication where you need essentially almost like machine learning to trace that out. <laughs> you know, we have room for human level sort of work, right? And, and it's beautiful. Like PCBs are like a human achievement, right? Like it's incredible medium and extremely high resolution too. So like we, we like to put the art on it and then, and then sort of expose that to the consumer so they can see. And then because we make security products, like you actually gain verification, right? Like you can verify the devices because you can see the traces, you can see what's going on in there. Hmm. So yeah, wow. it's sort of like an utilitarian artistic thing. Yeah, it is interesting because like, you know, a lot of designers, for example, consider like Apple products and things like that. Like that's like the high achievement of art at this point because, you know, of how beautiful it looks like when you get like a really nice MacBook or something like that. And that seems to be a consideration for a lot of people, how something looks rather than its functionality. And that's always been sort of like, attention for me. Like as an engineer, I just want something that works. But for a lot of people, it matters how it looks or feels or things like that. Like, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, I'm the same way, right? I want something that actually works, right? Mm. But there is no reason, as long as you're not wasteful, right? Mm. To not sort of like do some aesthetic passes on the design you came up with, right? Mm. It's kind of like your preference for how you put inline documentation on your code, right? <laughs> yeah, this is true, yeah. Right? Like, you can take some artistic freedom there, right? That doesn't get compiled. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And so there's no waste of resources. So, yeah, so you can, you know, like, why not, like, put in the effort, right? To sort of, like, make something that is utilitarian, right? Mm -hmm. Like, look aesthetically coherent, right? Or, like, pleasing to you. And I find that, like, you actually end up saving resources, right? Because, for example, on cold card, there is no silk screening on the case, right? The mm. cold card is mm -hmm. written inside in PCB. It's the same for all the regulation bullshit, like CE, Rojas, and, and mm -hmm. all that stuff. <laughs> that has to be silk screen? Yeah, well, I mean, it has to be on the product, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're going to put on the case, you have to do not just a case. Now you have to do one more process, which is either silk screen or something else, right? So every process that you do is one more sort of like cost in resources, right? So we just leverage the fact that we're doing silk screen on the board anyways, right? And mm. we put the information there and then we make it clear to you by the case being clear that the stuff is there. Yeah, and then we just put money into using better plastics, right? Like nobody in this market uses polycarbonate because it costs a lot more, but it's like virtually indestructible <laughs> and it's beautifully clear too. We still like send blasted a bit, but... So, like, you can see the stuff inside and the device is very stable, like it's mechanically sound. Hmm. That's interesting that you use higher grade plastic than what other people use. And I suppose they don't use, like, higher grade stuff because it's more expensive? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, like, normally when you develop products, like, professionally, like, to actually sell to consumers, 
you invent something, right? And then you come up, like you make many sort of like prototypes and then sort of production prototypes and things like that. And then you do cost reduction rounds, mm. right? Where mm. you keep on trying to reduce cost. And everybody has to do some of that, right? Because otherwise the cost is just too great, right? Mm. But then we stop like at a point where we feel like the product will suffer in terms of integrity, right? Mm. Like mechanical integrity, electrical integrity, that kind of stuff. So, you know, we use thicker PCBs. We, you know, we have like good protections for all the security stuff. You, you know, we put epoxy inside where the parts that matter, you know, we use the better plastic so that we don't need packaging, right? Mm. And sort of like a lot of little things like that. You know, we use quality domes on the button so they last. And uh, yeah, but at the same time, it's like, you know, security is a moving target. So like, you know, and, and this is a nascent industry. So we expect that most people will buy a new version of it in like a couple of years, right? Mm. Just because we're going to have a better version that was just not possible before. <laughs> because we learn a bunch of stuff and, and people are attacking our products like constantly, daily, and like teaching us new things. And there's new chips that come out. And, you know, there's a lot of sort of rotation in the knowledge and the parts. Mm. All right. So there's obviously other competitors that you have that are like creating hardware of various types. What are they doing? Like, there's obviously like a big market for this sort of stuff, but I don't know. Their stuff seems a little bit different, right? Like they're focused more on like having a nicer screen and stuff like that. Yours is a little more retro. You know, it's, I'm like reminded of playing like kind of like a video game or something when I'm looking at like an old school video, like text-based video game or something when I'm looking at your screen. Whereas like everyone else just tries to make it look as much like a phone as possible. Like, what led you to down that road? Like, why is it that way? Yeah, so the problem in this market is that they're all focused on shitcoin, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, really, they're all, like, most of the money that they make is from shitcoin traders, right? Mm -hmm. And their concern is not your personal safety and, like, in Bitcoin and, and, like, people who are trying to have, like, a long-term view in their hodl, right? So... Our mentality is very different. Like we design code card for ourselves and the way that we use Bitcoin. Mm. So, you know, I wanted to solve problems that are real, right? So how do I make sure that the wrench doesn't come on my head, right? Mm -mm. So we keep on inventing things that will prevent those, right? So like we do the split pin so you cannot be fished. You know, we, mm -hmm. we have the countdown timer so that like, you know, if a bad guy comes to your house, like, he's going to have to wait hours <laughs> before he can sign. You know, we did the SID SOAR thing so that like you can split the seeds and so you don't have single point of failure in the house. And none of those things require us to add more complexity and therefore more attack surface to the device, right? So those pretty screens require more complexity on the device that will add more security holes, right? Nothing is unhackable. So you try to reduce the attack surface. So, you know, those guys are running, some people are, some of those projects are running Android. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's insanity. You know, some of those projects don't have any security. Mm. <laughs> and we do sort of things like open source so that you can verify everything and sort of like this mentality, right? Like you don't need more than the screen we offer you to sign a Bitcoin transaction. Mm. 
right? If you're doing a bunch of shit coining, who knows? Maybe you need a bigger screen because there is more complication on it. <laughs> and these constraints really sort of like help keep the product uh, secure and concise, right? Mm. Indeed, it does. All right, so let's go in a slightly different direction. What are some hardware products that you think are really good in the market? And what do you think are bad in the market? Just speaking as a hardware engineer. I don't know. It's sort of like all over the place, right? Like mm -hmm. just in general. I mean, like there are brands out there that give you a lot of value, right? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of cool that way. So like, for example, like Macintosh Audio, right? Like you can buy one of those things from like 50 years ago and, and like, gonna probably work just fine you know you have like canon cameras like they're great right mm -hmm. you get a lot of value because there's a lot of competition on it and then like you have the internet of shit stuff right mm -hmm. like i don't want my fridge on the internet <laughs> <laughs> right it's like i don't want cameras inside the house right and you know i'm a big fan of like apple computers because for all the stupidity with packaging and like the woke crap on that company like it's still a very good hardware like mm -hmm. i mean like it's still an amazing computer inside there that doesn't break i mean i have a mac pro that's over 20 years old still running mm. like it's not my main machine but like it's good i i'm not sure if your question was sort of related like in general to products mm -hmm. or like or like my industry <laughs> yeah well i mean just in general i because i think for a lot of consumers like the reason why we you know they spend so much money on like the cover or the you know how it looks from the outside is because we have a hard time being able to discern what's on the inside and we're not really equipped to handle it. We, I mean, we just sort of know that it's a little slow or that one is a little buggy or something like that. But I guess what I'm trying to figure out is as a consumer, how do I know something is made well and will last? Like what are some sort of like rules of thumb or tips that you can give us to be able to discern whether something is made well or badly? You know, one of the best heuristics is resale value. Mm. It's kind of fascinating because like resale value shows that the product lasts, right? Mm. That it, it's still useful after it got used. It's probably not going to break or it just, even if it's something that's like maybe uh, not many uses of, still going to be functional enough or, or it's like hard to find because it is so good. So it's like the, the market signals on used market for things is very good. It's a very high signal to noise ratio. You know, so th there's this renaissance going on in China a little bit on like trying to make better things and also save on packaging and other parts, which is kind of cool. There's this brand for audio equipment called Hi-Fi Man. Mm. You know, classic Chinese brand that like chooses a terrible name, or like you know, there's some comments like "good display." It's, <laughs> it's kind of funny. It's just you know translation issues, but there are some Chinese brands, right, that now like produce good stuff that's like great value, mm. especially on analog stuff. Yeah, I mean, like trying to understand what you're buying, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how does it work? Or like, you know, like some European cars now, like, you know, you open the hood, you can't even see the motor anymore. Like it's mm. completely like covered. You know, why you see like Japanese companies like Toyota, right? Like where everything inside is like fixable and they use the same motor for 10 different cars. Mm -hmm. 
you know, can you find parts for the thing in the used market, right? Mm. Um, yeah, I think like sort of like the, the used market is is the best heuristic for, for quality of things. Hmm. Okay, that's a nice heuristic and certainly works for cars and things like that. And, you know, I mean, do you see like people reselling cold cards and stuff like that? <laughs> no. So security products are a completely different problem, right? Uh-huh. It's like condoms. <laughs> there is no used market for condoms. It's a protection device, right? So for our products, I mean, like we don't even resell returns, right? Mm. So if like package gets returned to us, we don't resell it, right? Like it just gets destroyed. Once you left our facility, it never goes back in. So that's sort of like the other side of it, where the cost of the product is not worth the risk of having that product's chain of custody being iffy. And, you know, we feel like a product that like is about a hundred bucks, right? It's never a concern for somebody who's trying to defend their money. Mm. So, you know, if you have any questions, if it's like, if it became questionable, right? The chain of custody or, or the device itself, you know what? Toss it. Mm. You know, just put the seed in a new one and move on. It's just not worth the same way, right? Like, I mean, if you have a better bicycle, you put a better lock on it, right? Mm. And, and if the lock was picked and it looks screwed up, I mean, you're not going to reuse it. <laughs> <laughs> As a security product. That makes sense. That makes yeah. sense. It's just different sort of different problems, right? Mm, it is. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about manufacturing because like... A lot of it is in China, and you did mention that labor costs in Canada, for example, are higher. You are producing everything in Canada. Like, is it ever going to come back? Like, no. why don't more people do what you're doing? What's going on? Yeah, well, so we never come back to North America. People, people are like completely like deluded if they think that North America or Europe would be competitive for manufacturing of many things. So. Manufacturing requires like lower regulation, requires economies of scale in logistics, right? So you want the factory that makes the screw that you use near the factory of the thing you make, mm. right? And then there is all the environmental crap, right? The like, you know, some of it is valid, some of it is not, some of it can be fixed, right? It's a cost problem. But, you know, if you need a two-year assessment on gender and whatever to build a factory somewhere, <laughs> right? like, I mean, that's it, right? You lost, right? And then there is like labor, right? Like in North America, we cannot find competent labor. There is only so many engineers, like mm. physical things, right? There is only so many tradespeople. There is only so many like lathe operator in China or like, you know, you just say, I'm looking for... I don't know, lathe operator, right? There's going to be a line of a literal 1 million people outside the factory (laughs) that want the job, right? Mm. So there is this difference in terms of availability of of like people resources and and like land resources, like, you know, electricity, everything you need to make stuff. I think that for premium things, you know, China's trying to take some of that premium market so much so that Apple produces their stuff there. But, you know, Europe still does a good job, at it, especially Germany, right? They have a lot of tradespeople in Germany that can do things that have enough margin for high labor cost, right? Or kitchens are made in Italy, kind of thing, right? 
But then IKEA is coming and eating all those markets and using robots, right? So maybe <laughs> manufacturing comes back to North America in a way where it's like robots. But again, it's just so hard to be removed from the other parts of the processes, right? So like the, the screw factory, the spring factory, the raw material PCB factory, you know, so much so that like it costs like 10 times more to make an actual PCB, the sheet, right, in North America. Like you're not going to do that. Everybody makes their PCBs in China. Hmm. Well, it seems like all of the manufacturing is there. So there's like a network effect yes. of manufacturing. Yeah, there's like, well, it's not different than like parts, like car assemblies, right? Like mm. you have all the factories that make the parts near the factory that assembles them, right? Mm. And there is incredible savings because again, like shipping is expensive, right? And you want to find problems and correct them by just running to the other factory and say, hey, the spring is a little off. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And then you don't have to stock things too, right? Because you can have just-in-time manufacturing between the multiple processes too, it's mm. like, you don't have to store the springs. The springs come from the spring factory into the factory that uses the springs, right? But yeah, it's a mixture of like the logistics and the labor. Mm. So, I mean, if manufacturing isn't coming back, I mean, is it just going to stay in China or is it going to keep moving to like lower and lower labor cost places? What's I, I think China found a sweet spot that they're not going to let go. Mm. They will do whatever they have to do like no matter consequences kind of thing so that they can still own that. And, you know, like there is no infrastructure in Africa, right? For example, to do, it's like the last place on earth that like labor will be even cheaper than China. But like, they, they're not gonna, like they don't have infrastructure for manufacturing and culture of doing that kind of stuff. So I doubt that many things will go there. There is other parts of Asia. You know, Malaysia does a lot of stuff and, and Philippines does a lot of stuff. If I remember right, the hard drive industry is in, in Vietnam or Philippines. Vietnam. I thought it was Singapore, but maybe not. I can't remember now. It's like these things change. I remember there was one factory that made the springs for hard drives that was uh-huh. like in a flood zone somewhere there. Uh-huh. And like, and the factory got flooded. And then like for two <laughs> years, hard drives were almost double price. <laughs> because of just the spring. That's right. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that speaks to sort of a very interconnected, like, centralized manufacturer of everything like do you think that changes ever or is it no it only gets worse because products are just progressively becoming more complex right Mm. i mean it's like i was saying right like an iphone pcb design is almost like a human cannot do it right Mm. so you're gonna need very specialized parts for everything there is no it's not like toyota in a car a car is simple right in Mm. a way so toyota can make the same motor that fits three different cars, right? They just mm. put some alterations on it, but it's the same motor or mostly the same parts. Mm. So, so there is the economies of scale there on those parts, including the logistics of those parts. Now, when you have hyper-specialized products, right, or highly complex products, every single thing in it is unique, right? Even the adhesive that they're probably using on an iPhone between the 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 screen and the backing of the screen like mm. <clears throat> it's made for them by them i mean apple mm. bought the sapphire like the synthetic sapphire factory so that they could mm. make their own sapphire in their specific mix for iphone cameras oh wow <laughs> <laughs> i mean like that's the level of specialization and it's not like good or bad it's just necessary 
right? Mm. Because you cannot make that product at that cost with that capability without being so specialized. I, I feel like people who hate on specialization sort of miss that. It's just, that's what's required. Yeah, it's just, it's very interesting how intense these things are. Yeah, it sounds like it. Okay, so how does Bitcoin change all of this stuff? Like, do you see hardware changing as a result of getting on the Bitcoin standard? Or do you see it sort of like playing out the same way it's been going for a while? What Bitcoin does is change people's time preference, right? Mm. So I think Bitcoin enforces or forces people into double thinking their spending uh, practices. So it's going to make products have to offer more value, right? Mm. It just it makes harder for you to win a part <laughs> with your mm -hmm. sets for a certain mm -hmm. product. And it's going to revolutionize credit too because of, at least until fiat fails. So those two things essentially make a much healthier market in terms of, of like, producing things that last longer and produce and give you more value, right? So why are you going to be changing your fashion, you know, like with like H&M style stuff, like every month, right? Mm. Or whatever that is. I'm not into fashion, but I assume it's probably <laughs> like people just buy new pants every week. Why are you going to buy disposable pants, right? Mm. If like, if you're going to be perfectly happy with this other brand that offers just like a little bit more quality so the pants last just the right amount of time to justify that span, right? It makes the market less vain and more interested, in, more utilitarian in a way, just because utilitarian things provide more real value as opposed to ephemeral value. Hmm. So like that seems to be the tension in hardware and a lot of other things is like how something looks versus how useful it is. Like we talked about that a little bit earlier. Yeah, and you seem to be saying that people will think about utility a lot more and less about how it looks right now, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, like, listen, if you're passionate about having a mosaic, you know, like mm -hmm. in a laptop cover or whatever, great. I mean, that's your unique passion for that, right? And you mm -hmm. uniquely will want to pay more for that and will part with your sets for that, mm -hmm. right? It's a different value proposition than forcing mosaics on everybody who don't want mosaics just want the damn thing that works mm. right for as cheap as possible mm. so i think that's sort of like you start getting more of a bare functionality thing you, you go back to more utilitarian i think this is just like how bitcoin pushes people to be because you know bitcoin is a this amazing tool to do opportunity cost and if mm. you're doing you know if you're not buying a set today to give it for something else, right? You're giving away a 200 year over year appreciation on it. <laughs> right. So you have to make more higher quality products for people or at least products that last a little longer. Yeah, either last longer or offer better value, right? Mm. Like, you know, like some things will always be disposable, mm. but are you offering the best value for that disposability or not, right? Yeah, And that whole concept of value is really at the heart of money. And because we don't value our fiat money that much, we're willing to buy like very disposable, not stuff that doesn't provide that much value. I mean, it's kind of fascinating, right? The 
Like you look at Canada, MT supply, right? Like skyrocketed, that skyrocketed, everything, right? Like any person watching this from the outside, especially from a different period in time, would say like, this thing is going to implode, right? Mm-hmm. And credit is extremely cheap. And like, you know, people are losing jobs, getting destitute. And yet, you know, you have record sales for boats. <laughs> right? I mean, it does not get more sort of like secondary, tertiary in the scale of needs than by a boat, right? Mm -hmm. Especially if it looks like you might lose your job and like record boat sales. Mm. You have like everybody's redoing their houses in Canada. People are like buying everything on Amazon. Like it is beyond me, right? Like how Mm. people feel this rich when like the economy is like, you know, a a centimeter away from like imploding. Yeah, which leads to this whole idea of storing value and making sure you get good money for value. Like I found myself kind of like the past few years, like having a change in mentality. Like I value Bitcoin for its store of value function. And therefore, I like don't care as much about sort of like the disposable things that I buy, right? Like, yeah. It's like, I I see myself, like, listen, I I love buying stuff, Mm -hmm. right? I love stuff. I like playing, tinkering things, right? Like experimenting with new sort of like electronic categories or whatever, right? Like Mm -hmm. I I like stuff, physical objects and physical objects cost money. (laughs) And and like, I see myself like not wanting or double thinking about things I could definitely afford, still not buying them just because... Even if I'm not even going to buy Bitcoin with that fiat like allocation, right? It's just like it makes you like really think about your spending. It really sort of makes you reflect over opportunity cost in a way that we've forgotten, right? I mean, in nature, you know, an animal understands opportunity cost, right? You have to calculate, do I get out, spend energy to go try to find more food? Or should I just chill, not spend any energy, but maybe not get food? Right. Mm. It's a very complicated calculation that you do based on weather, based on geography, based on all these things. Or uh, unemployment checks in in our case. But yeah. Exactly. Right. So <laughs> so now like we're paying people to do nothing. The experiment has failed. I was curious, right? I mean, listen, it's gonna get tricky, right? Because you're gonna have a lot of have nots, right? And society can that often leads to violence. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, you know, I grew up in Brazil. Like we have a lot of have-nots and, and that leads to a lot of violence. So it's not my cup of tea to give people a check, but I was curious nonetheless how this experiment would work out. Right In Canada, we have this CERB. Like it's like 2,500 bucks essentially a month to people. Mm. And what that did is it broke the market. Like mm. you cannot hire people to do a job that would pay them $4,000, almost double. Mm. Because why would you move your ass, right, for $4,000 if you can get $2,500 and not move your ass? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's the calculation that people do. Mm. It's that conservation versus spend to acquire, right? And, you know, you see this in manufacturing. You see, like, taxi drivers, right? Like, why are they going to, like, go work? If you can just get that check and they keep on like putting more regulations on the poor cabbies, right? And, <laughs> and, and they have to pay for this insurance and that and that and that, right? Like, it's like, screw that. I'm mm. going to just sit at home, take this check and maybe rethink what I want to do with my life, right? 
Mm. But people are not doing what all this the central planners thought people were going to do, which is you take that extra money and you work on top of it and you maybe invest in yourself in education and all this stuff. Nobody's doing that. Mm. That's right. No one actually like they'd rather just live and do, you know, whatever the heck they want to do. It's that calculation that you talked about, like that animals do in the wild, which is. All right, do I go and hunt or do I just sit around? Most of them would rather just kind of sit around. It yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> the natural state of any animal, right? Mm. It's, it's like energy conservation state. Because mm. <laughs> <laughs> there is risk, right? Like the, the animal leaves the cave, right? Now he's at risk. He's at risk of getting hurt. He's at risk of uh, walking too long. He's at risk of uh, fighting another male that he's going to have to fight. He's at risk of predators, right? So like, but he needs food at some point. <laughs> <laughs> so like, if you just give him just enough to survive, he's not going to leave the cave. Mm. It's really not that simple. Like, sorry, it's not that complicated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that is interesting. And we'll see where this takes us in terms of manufacturing and so on going forward. Anyway, where can people find you at NVK? You can find me on Twitter, NVK. You can find me, my stuff on uh, coinkite.com. Then all our products are sort of all over the place. But yeah, like I said, it seems that Twitter is, is always sort of like the easiest way to find me. Yeah. And you're certainly on Clubhouse, although CJ does a really good impression of you. So yeah, yeah it's if hard I'm to tell. not there, there's a baseball star. <laughs> <laughs> He's my replacement. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's too bad I, I couldn't get him to do an impression of you when I had him on the show. But anyway, well, thank you for coming on the show. It was really fun, like trying to figure out what's happening in manufacturing. I think I learned a lot. Hopefully my listeners did too. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. Yeah. Before I finish up, I wanted to mention that Unchained Capital is a new sponsor of this podcast. I recently joined Unchained as an advisor on the engineering side. I know the team well, and I'm excited about what Unchained is building. If you need multi-sig, collaborative custody, or a Bitcoin native financial services partner, learn more at unchained.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. NVK can be found at at NVK on Twitter and coinkite.com. Until next time, fiat delenda est.